0: This week, I heard an interview on National Public Radio with a Canadian comedian named Russell Peters. Uh, you may have never heard of Russell Peters, but if you follow or uh, like to watch and listen to comedy shows, Russell Peters is one of the most prominent names in the business in uh, the world, actually. Uh, Forbes magazine recently named him as one of the top ten highest earning comics in this country. Now, Peters was born in South Asia. Soon after he was born, though, he emigrated with his parents to Canada. And he is known as an excellent mimic. Uh, he can do accents of all sorts, of all kinds of people from all different regions. He has made his living by uh, uh, doing Arabian accents and, and uh, uh, mimicking Indians and Asians. He's really very skilled, Uh, He also is not afraid to uh, uh, offend people. (laughs) Uh, He has built his career on poking fun at cultures and classes and race and ethnicity. He he offends some people. Uh, Most people just like to laugh along. It is healthy to be able to laugh at yourself. Uh, When he was interviewed by NPR, the, uh, the interviewer asked him if there were any subjects, any issues that were off the table. Listen to what he said. Well, I don't really talk about religion just because some of my audience may be very religious and I don't want to offend their beliefs. I feel like if you need it in your life, then enjoy. I don't feel like I need it. I accept accountability for things that I do and say in my life and I feel that religion is a way to hide from accountability. i am thinking about that statement a little bit. I accept accountability. I take responsibility for things that I do and say in my life, and I feel that religion is a way to hide from accountability. I wonder what he means by that, or, or why he thinks that religion is a way to dodge your personal responsibility. I always thought you could do that by going on Oprah. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe uh, Russell Peters is thinking of people who who blame God for their actions. Um, Religious practitioners of every stripe use religion as an excuse for uh, sexism, racism, bigotry, greed. Why can't women drive cars in Saudi Arabia? Because Allah says so. Uh, there's not many specifics about cars in the Quran, but, but religious people have found it there. Or maybe Peter's when he's talking about dodging responsibility, is thinking about religious believers who take forgiveness or who talk about forgiveness as if it's an easy thing. Uh, this is the, the type of religion that the Godfather movies taught us about. Um, you can do as much as you want during the week. You can create as much mayhem. You can order murders. You can run drugs. You can evade police officers. As long as you're in church, uh, on Saturday or Sunday morning, you're okay. God forgives you. You don't have to grapple with the reality of, of what you do as long as you have a pastor or a priest or an imam who provides you with the cover. You don't have to take responsibility. You have a holy man who will tell you it's okay. Maybe that's what Peter's is thinking of. That that may be true of other religions, of some religions, but this dodging of our responsibility is is, uh, not true of the Christianity that's taught in the Bible. And it's not true of the Hebrew form of worship that God established for the Israelite people in the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, the whole system of worship that God has created begins with costly honesty about who we really are. The only way, in fact, that you can have a real relationship with the real God is through blunt acknowledgement of your condition, of who you are, of how you really stand before Him. That's where it begins. Uh, last week we started a study of the, of the book of Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible. It is a, it's a book for Levites. It's the priest's book of worship. It's part of the story of how God... Uh, who created the world, chose one man named Abraham and his family, the nation of Israel, to be at the center of his plans to recreate and rescue the world that we human beings have broken. In the book of Leviticus, God takes up residence with the people. He moves in with the people and and he uh, shows them what it means for the fact that he's living with them. I didn't show you this connection last week, but perhaps it will help you here as we begin. I want to show you how Exodus flows into the book of Leviticus. So, uh, my Bible is open to the last chapter of the book of Exodus, and if you'd like to turn there too, that'd be great. I want to show you briefly how your Bible, at least how these two books are put together. I want you to be able to think uh, through the books of the Bible, and here we move from Exodus to Leviticus. Again, I'm in Exodus chapter 40. Conveniently for me, the last page of Exodus is on the left, and the first page of Leviticus is on the right. You know about Exodus probably from Sunday school or from that fine movie starring Charles Charles Heston. Charles Charles, that's what my problem is. Charlton Heston. Well, anyway. Okay, so that was way before my time, way before my time, way before my time. Anyway, the book of Exodus starts. How does it start? Uh, God's people, uh, Abraham and his family, they move down into Exodus. They're there for slave, as slaves for 400 years, and God rescues them. That's the story of Exodus. God rescues them from Egypt. He brings them up. He's going to take them to the promised land. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He tells them about the covenant that he's going to have with them. And then, for most of Exodus, he instructs them in how to build a tent, a special tent. All the people live in tents, and God is going to live in a tent too. It's called the tabernacle and this is going to be the special dwelling place of God among the people. God gives them detailed instructions in the book of Exodus and then it repeats almost verbatim those instructions as they actually do what um, God has told them to do. Now look at Exodus verse four, chapter 40, verse 34. Here's what's going to happen. Then the cloud, the cloud was the visible presence of God. That's how they knew God was with them. They could see Him in, in a special cloud. That cloud covered the tent of meeting, it covered that tent they made, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now we'll pause there for just a minute. What happens now in verses 36 and 30, uh, through 38, he tells the people what the cloud does and how God moves them. Here's the habit that they had. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. So if you went up to an Israelite and you said, is God with you? Yes. How do you know God's with you? Because I can see him. He's right there over that tent. That's God's tent. This is my tent. God lives in that tent. Now, Notice here, verse 35 says, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right over to verse 1 of Leviticus 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Can you see how they flow right one from another? Exodus right into Leviticus. The tent comes down and then God calls to Moses, Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, And then he gives him instructions. Now that I'm here, now that I'm in this tent that you have built for me, I'm going to tell you what it means for you that I live here in this tent with you. Um, What what does it mean that the holy God has taken up residence physically among the people? And in this book, there are some hard and strange laws. And most of the hard and strange laws in Leviticus are aimed at protecting the people from the Lord's invasive, omnipotent holiness. Um, Every summer, it seems, I hear more and more and more from people about sunscreen. They talk about sunscreen more than when you were a little kid. All the time, right? Got to put sunscreen on uh, constantly. You need to be protected from the sun. The sun can kill you. Uh, we couldn't live without the sun. The sun provides light and heat. Its gravitational pull keeps the galaxy in order. It's a tremendous blessing. But careless, thoughtless, sloppy exposure to the sun will kill you. Um, Here, God in his holiness has moved in among the nation and his presence is a source of great blessing, tremendous blessing, but they must be protected from the purifying radiance of his holiness. And Leviticus teaches them, the people, about how to live in the presence of this holy God. It's also aimed at creating categories in the people's minds so that they really understand how different, how separate, how other God is from them in his goodness, in his power, in his glory, in his beauty. One of the things that I want from us as we study this book is that we would understand these laws not because we're responsible to follow them. We're not a covenant people like this. We're not a nation living in the promised land like this. Um, but we we want to know God's beauty and glory and power. Uh, most of you know I, I like to learn about history, people who lived a long time ago. My wife, not so much. But she likes art and she likes architecture. So one of the things that we do together, uh, we have discovered, is we like to visit old houses. Not like my old house, but like old historic houses. Uh, several years ago we went to uh, Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home in Virginia. Maybe many of you have been to that home. It's one of the most beautiful homes in uh, the country. If you go for a tour of this house, one of the things you'll see uh, uh, is interesting in his foyer is this huge clock to tell time. The clock not only gives you the uh, hour and the minute, it also tells you what day of the week it is. Uh, there's a series of of weights and 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 pulleys that every 24 hours over on one side of the wall, there's the days of the week painted on the wall and weights, and they move down uh, every day every 24 hours to indicate what day of the week it is. If you go and you notice the wall, it's very odd. There's only six days written on the wall according to the laws of physics that were bound, uh, that were uh, entailed in this foyer, he, he didn't have enough room for all seven days of the week. The tour guide told us that Thomas Jefferson had a seven-day clock and a six-day wall. So what did he do? Jefferson ingeniously drilled a hole in the floor so that the weights could go all the way down into the basement. And actually, if you go into the basement underneath the foyer, you'll find written, painted on the wall, Sunday, <laughs> last day of the week, there it is, in the basement, I find that fascinating. It's very interesting to me to go in and and um, I uh, appreciate his creativity, his ingenuity. I don't I don't admire the clock because I need a clock like that. I have dozens of devices around my house to tell me what day it is. In fact, I'm more aware of what day it is than most people in Thomas Jefferson's uh, day were. But seeing his house enables me to know his mind, and I appreciate it. And we're reading the Book of Leviticus so that we can know God's mind. Not to recreate this house, but to know His mind. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to begin looking at what God told Moses and the Israelites about sacrifices. Sacrifice, The sacrificial system comprises the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. From 1-3 through 6, chapter 7 he describes the five different types of sacrifices and how the people were to bring them. Burn offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. Then in chapter 6, 8 through the end of chapter 7, he describes how the priests were supposed to handle them. Now, <laughs> this is the section of Scripture most geared, uh, most likely to offend members of PETA, people for the ethical treatment of animals. This is here established an institution that will involve the bloody slaughter of thousands, if not millions, of animals. This is a bloody religion. Actually, you don't need to be an animal rights activist to uh, wonder about this. This is strange and violent and gory. What I want to do is I want to describe how this uh, burnt offering happened here for a few minutes. Uh, The burnt offering was the most common type of offering. This is the description in Leviticus 1 of family worship. Now, if you were to read in the book of Numbers, specifically Numbers 28 and 29, it would tell you about national sacrifices. Every day, according to Numbers 28 and 29, the priests were to offer burnt offerings, one in the morning, one in the evening. If you wanted, though, as a family to worship... This is what you would do. This is about individual family worship, Leviticus chapter uh, 1. Burnt offerings are listed first here in this order, although you usually, we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, usually didn't offer just a burnt offering. The burnt offering would be one of a series of offerings that you would offer if you were to take your family and go to the tabernacle to worship. We'll uncover that, uh, Lord willing, as the time goes by. There were three types of burnt offerings, and the Lord describes them all here in this chapter. Uh, the differences are based on your wealth. You did the same thing with them, but depending on how wealthy you were, determine what kind of offering you brought. For example, in verses 3 through 9 of chapter 1, he talks about offering a bull, uh, an offering from the herd. If you were very wealthy, or the wealthiest people would bring bulls as a burnt offering. In verses 10 through 13, you would bring a sheep as an offering, an offering from the flock, a ram. In verses 14 through 17, you would bring, if you were poor, you would bring a bird, either a dove or a young uh, pigeon. Most people at times seemed uh, to offer rams. There was a gate in the city of Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate Gate. The reason it's called the sheep gate is because people, Jews who would travel from far away, wouldn't be able to bring their bulls or their sheep with them, their rams with them, so they'd come and they'd buy a sheep in order to offer it as a sacrifice, and where do you get your sheep? At the sheep store, which was right at the sheep gate. Um, that's the offering that most people offered. The point of this difference between the three, the three types of offerings, were that it was a message from God that anybody can worship. God does not play favorites based on wealth. You would think, the way some Christian preachers talk about money, you would think that wealth is the only way you know that God loves you. Uh, but that is not true. Now, incidentally, in the Gospel of Luke, when Mary and Joseph come to the temple to do purification offerings, which we'll talk about in uh, several weeks, uh, they, brought, they brought offerings of, do you know what, what they offered? Birds. The text says they brought Birds. Our Lord did not grow up in a wealthy home. Now, this chapter describes uh, a process three different times. Once, is what you do with a herd, a bull. It's what you do with a ram. It's what you do with a bird. Uh, three times here. Uh, verse 3 reads this way. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, the bull, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it, uh, this is the worshiper, he must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. The offering, offering had to be perfect. He had to have no physical def, defects and it must be male. Um, at this time, perfectly, uh, physically perfect male specimens were more valuable because the males could be bred more often than the female from the herd. This is a costly sacrifice. Get the most expensive type of bull you can. And the offer and the offering were to bring the animal to the entrance to the tent of meeting. Uh, probably some of you are familiar with this. The tent of meeting itself was surrounded by a large courtyard. The courtyard was about the size of a quarter of a football field. So if in the next few weeks you find yourself watching football, maybe you will, um, one quarter of the field is about the size of the courtyard and the tent would be in, in the middle of it. And the worshiper was to bring his animal, lead his animal into this uh, courtyard. Verse 4, he is to lay his hand on the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Now the text says lay, maybe your translation says lean. There's, there's a, it's a little bit more of an emphasis here, lean on it. Then, verse 5, he's to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. So you lean on the animal and you take a knife and you slit the the, the throat of the bull. Uh, Verse 5, it says, Aaron's sons, the priests, this is what the priest does, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Somehow, when the the offerer slit the throat, the priest was there with a container to collect the blood and then the blood was taken over to the altar and it says sprinkled. The word is really splashed. It's a lot of blood. Splash the blood on all four sides of the altar. Um, Now, birds were a little bit different here. Uh, The priest actually killed the bird. If you look at verse 15... um, The priest shall bring the bird to the altar. Look what it does. Look what he's supposed to do. Ring off the head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. So you take the bird, you take it in your hand, you twist its head off, and you squeeze the bird and get blood to spurt out on the altar. Are you horrified yet? Well, it gets worse here. Back to the bull. Let's go back to the bull, verse 6. He, that is the offerer, is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. So you skin the animal. The, the, the skin will actually go uh, to the priest. And then, uh, verse 7, "...the sons of Aaron are to take the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is on the altar." So you skin the animal, you slaughter the animal, you drain the blood, you skin the animal, you cut the animal up, and the animal, the priest takes the animal and puts it on the altar. Uh, then, uh, verse 9, the offer is to wash the inner parts and all the legs with water. Now, what's that about here? Um, it, it seems to me that you take the, the inner parts, he's talking about the intestines, and the back legs in particular, you need to wash off any undigested food or any manure that was on this animal before it could be put on the altar because um, uh, un- undigested food, the Bible uses the word offal for that. Offal is awful. Remember that? Um, awful, you wash that off, wash the back legs, and then they can go on the uh, altar because offal is impure. It's ritually impure. It's got to be gone. Now, they do something different with a bird with the bird, they don't uh, wash the back legs like that. Instead, they just pull out the crop, verse 16, and its contents. That's how you get rid of the bird dung, bird uh, droppings, and you put the bird on the altar. It's to be completely consumed. It's burned up. Uh, everything goes from the altar, and it's all consumed by fire. Now, think about how worship, then, was different from how you worship today. <laughs> Today you'll leave church without blood stains on your clothes. Can you slaughter an animal like this without getting blood on your clothes somewhere? Seems like impossible to me. Uh, think of how hot and sweaty you would be leaving the tabernacle. Skinning an animal and cutting it up without an electric saw is hard work. And think about the smells involved in this. That metallic smell of blood. There must have been that smell everywhere. That coppery smell of blood was just. How did how? What did they do about the flies? There must have been flies everywhere. Uh, and, and the smell of the animals. <laughs> Bring all these animals in. It's gonna it's gonna it's gonna smell. Or most pervasively. <laughs> There's the aroma of roasting meat. You know what it smells like when your neighbor's grilling, right? Get out of your car, you walk out your house and it makes your mouth water. In fact, you're thinking about it now and your mouth is watering, isn't it? That's the pervasive smell that comes from the tabernacle, the smell of roasting meat. It's an important smell. We'll talk about it a little bit later and more as weeks go by. And when you leave, leave the, uh, the temple after you offer a burnt offering, you leave it there. All of it. There is nothing left except the skin, again, which the priests uh, keep. That, that's unique about this type of, of offering. To some, this process is disgusting and wasteful. Thousands of animals were slaughtered this way. I, I want to show you, though, why it's not disgusting and wasteful. I want to show you, I want you to see, in fact, that it's necessary and good. And I want to do that by unfolding to you what this offering reveals about what is necessary in order to have a relationship with the God of the Bible. There's two things I want you to see, actually, the three. First, this text tells us that to have a relationship with the God of the Bible, you must approach him on the basis of a substitute. To worship, to have a relationship with the God of the Bible, you must approach Him on the basis of a substitute. There is no other way. There is no other way to come before the God of the Bible. To know this God, to worship this God, to be accepted by Him, that He accepts a substitute as a mark of His grace. There is goodness in this, uh, this process. It is kind on His part that He allows you to come through a substitute. Now, some people might object to this. Why an animal? Why did an animal have to die like this? Why is God so violent in his demands? Is the God of the Bible bloodthirsty? It seems he's awful bloodthirsty according to this passage. I think when you raise that objections, you might misunderstand what the Bible says about our true condition before this holy God. Uh, This week, my son was thrilled. They were on sale, and my wife brought home for him one day new pajamas, Superman pajamas. Uh, Probably some of you have seen the picture. I, I took a picture. He was very proud of his Superman pajamas. And when my children, this is, we live in the 21st century, when my children accomplish something, they say, take a picture and put it on Facebook. So... I posted a picture of Luke in his Superman pajamas. Um, his interest and his delight in superheroes is only going to grow and develop as he gets older. Um, I, I remember playing with my super action, uh, superhero action figures. Uh, he will play with his, and he'll act out his own rescue stories. And we're drawn to these sort of stories, all of us. In fact, if you doubt how drawn we are to stories like this, just look at the box office receipts from the movie theater every summer. We love superhero stories. And in every superhero story, there are three essential characters. There's the superhero, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, Green Lantern. There's the villain, Lex Luthor, uh, Lex Luthor, the Joker, the Penguin. And then there are victims, all three of those. The superhero, the villain, and the victim. The one who's been oppressed, abused, imprisoned. Uh, those who need to be rescued. When a little boy puts himself in a superhero story, who does he cast himself as? The hero. When you think about yourself in those scenarios, where do you put yourself? The hero. You always do. Almost always. That's why they make Superman pajamas. You probably can't find Lex Luthor pajamas. They're probably somewhere. Some sadistic person makes them. but They're hard to find. And trust me, there are no such thing as victim pajamas. No little boy wants to put on his pajamas and say, look, I need to be rescued. Uh, You put yourself in your imagination in the story as uh, you're the one who has come to save the day. You punish the evildoers. You rescue the oppressed. Some of you, you you put yourself in the story. You might label yourself as, as the victim. That's the sort of life you've lived the one who needs to be rescued. But I don't think anybody here gladly puts themselves into the story as as the villain. Think about that. that, I I read reports. I didn't watch and hear every word. But what's interesting this week, Lance Armstrong is the victim of a corrupt cycling culture, isn't he? Hmm. you don't put yourself there as the, the oppressor, the abuser, the imprisoner. Uh, the truth of the matter, though, is that the Bible says that's where you belong. You're the villain. Actually, the Bible is, is uh, not that simplistic. The Bible says that you, at various times in your life, fill all three roles. Sometimes you're the hero, sometimes you're the victim, sometimes you're the villain. Imagine this, you're driving home from work, you had a bad day and you're angry because your boss was having a bad day and he took it out on you. You are the victim of his power, his authority. But as you're driving along, uh, you, you're, you're moving along the road and there's somebody, long line of traffic, somebody who wants to get in. Uh, and He's been waiting there a long time and, and you wave him in and you're the hero. You rescued him from a traffic nightmare. And you get home and while well, you still had a bad day, and in the next couple hours, you make your spouse, your children, feel the intensity of your bad day. And in that course of what, two, three hours, you are uh, victim, superhero, and villain all at the same time. Uh, the sacrifice, this sacrifice is aimed at your villainy, your culpability before God. According to the Bible, God is the hero who rescues every victim and He ensures that perfect justice is done. But if God's justice is done perfectly, some of it we clamor, Oh God, be just, be just, be just. His justice is aimed right at my life for the villainy that I have done, for the oppression that I have leveled, the unkindness that I have dealt, the aggression that you have spread to your spouse and to your parents and to your kids and your siblings. God Himself, and that you don't honor him as he deserves to be honored. See, Christianity is not about escaping accountability. It's about owning accountability. And if you own your accountability like God says, you are destined to die. The Bible says this from the beginning. Oppressors, abusers, imprisoners, snobs, gossips, liars, thieves, the impatient, the grumblers, they all deserve to die. You can't come to God without a substitute. You cannot come on your own. Now what does the substitute do here? Two things, they're they're related. First, the substitute dies in your place. It dies in your place. This is a key element of the whole process. The identification that takes place between the worshiper and, and the bull. Lean on it. Put your hand on it. Lean on it. And What do you do then? There's no words here. Uh, listen to Leviticus 1 to describe what, what you do when you lean on this bull. There's, um, do you confess your sins? Some people think so. Maybe there's psalms. You would quote a psalm. There's lots of psalms that talk about burnt offerings and, and prayers to God to accept the burnt offering. Maybe that's what you do. But this process of leaning and, and slaughtering is, is a statement. This animal represents Me. This animal dies the death that I deserve to die in the presence of a holy God. I'm the oppressor. I'm the abuser. I'm the negligent. I'm the adulterer. I'm the thief. I'm the one who's bitter. I'm the one who's arrogant. And and this animal is me. He dies in your place. Second, he atones for your sin. He atones for your sin. Verse 4. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. The word atonement is one of the most important words in the book of Leviticus. It comes from an old English word. The word was one-ment. One-ment. It means to be unified. It means to have a close relationship, to be at one with someone. This is not the natural condition of us before God. We're alienated from him. The Bible, the Bible describes sin in many shades and it uses diverse word pictures and talks about a variety of ways in which God deals with sin. Here, it seems to me, the emphasis seems to be on pacifying God's anger. That's what atonement here means. It is good and right for God to be angry at villains. We want Him to be angry at villains. He's angry at me because I'm a villain. And this offering soothes his wrath. It it removes it. It makes it possible for the worshiper and God to be reconciled. In fact, it's the only way through a substitute. Now, notice notice something else here. Um, To have a relationship with the God of the Bible, you must surrender the substitute. You must surrender the substitute. The bird offering is unique among all the other sacrifices because it is wholly consumed on the altar. And now here we're moving from atonement to adoration. This is an act of worship. I am making atonement with this animal and I am leaving it here and it's being completely consumed as a sign of my allegiance. Meat was expensive. Meat was very expensive. Most Israelites didn't eat meat. That was not a part of their normal diet. Their animals served other functions. They were food only on special occasions. Remember, um, the prodigal son's father slaughtered the fattened calf. They had one animal set aside for, for a meal, a fancy meat meal. Other than that, you didn't eat meat. But by the surrender of this meat, a whole bowl, you know how many hamburgers you could get out of this bowl? By sacrificing this, you are making a public declaration about God's holiness. You offer something that's dear to you, that costs you something. By slaughtering the animal, you're declaring your condition before God. By surrendering the animal, you are declaring God's worthiness. We move from atonement to adoration. There's one more thing about this text that we should see here. Uh, It it is also about this burnt offering, and it's also what it means to have a relationship with God. A relationship with God is sealed by His approval. Approval. It's number three if you're uh, following along here. A relationship with God is sealed by His approval. The text three times in verse 9 and verse 13 and in verse 17 uses this phrase. This is a burnt offering. It's an offering made by fire. It's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Maybe your, your text says it's a soothing aroma to the Lord. Uh, this is metaphorical language God doesn 't have a nose, but every worshiper knew about the smell of his offering. Can you imagine if you lived next to the tabernacle, your tent was close, what it would be like oh, all day long? Oh, that smells so good. That roasting meat, it, it satisfies you, it delights you. So this smell is a soothing aroma to the Lord. He approves. He approves not just the rote performance, but the glad obedience that's represented, represented here. There's, there's peace, peace to the substitute. Now up to this point, I've largely been speaking about this offering in the same way that I described Jefferson's clock. It's clever. It's an interesting feature of the house. It's 200 years old. It's nothing that I'm going to build in my own house. And now we have to do, before we finish, what we're going to do every single week. I want to show you how this points forward to Jesus Christ. The laws of the Old Testament are like teachers, Paul said. They're meant to bring us to Jesus. Uh, This is the foundation on which Jesus introduced himself to the nation of Israel. And you can see the connection here, can't you, without much thought. In fact, we talk about this connection every single week. It's at the center of our church. This is our affirmation. Jesus is the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice. That's what this represents. Doing this offering every week, uh, every time they worshipped, the uh, people were to get this idea, I need a substitute. And the New Testament comes along and declares, Jesus is Himself the ultimate sacrifice. He was not slaughtered in the temple. He was slaughtered on Calvary for us. He was perfect in every way as our offering. And we know why in God's plan he was slaughtered. Paul says in Romans 3 that God presented him as an atoning sacrifice. We identify with him. He became our sin bearer when he died. How do we identify with him? With the Israelites, it was a very physical thing. You lean on the animal and you slit his throat. How do we identify with Jesus? Through confession, by faith. It's the grand invitation of the Bible. The, all, the Bible uh, makes this offer to everybody. You can have a real relationship with the real God by confessing your sins, turning to Jesus Christ in faith, recognizing His work on the cross, casting yourself on Him, through Him, and, and because of Him, we come. We identify with Him. It's our access. This past summer we went to... Uh, um, Washington, D.C. We were there for a couple of days, and my dad really wanted to take my, nieces, my children and my nieces and nephews into the White House for a tour. Months in advance, uh, we made, he made reservations, and we went down to the city, and we were walking there. and we, we, uh, they went. I was going to stay outside with the backpacks. They went inside, and uh, they were by the gate, and, and the Secret Service, uh, or the, those who were guarding the entrance, said, you know, uh, your tour is for tomorrow? Huh. <laughs> We were a day early. Um, so, well, we, we left. And as we were leaving, my dad said to my sister, she lives outside Washington, D.C., said to my sister, don't, don't you know somebody who's, who's a member of the Secret Service? Yeah, I do, actually. He's in my Sunday school class. Lives in the neighborhood. My dad said, can't you call him? <laughs> no, you can't call the Secret Service. But he would have been our access point. He, he potentially could have been the way to get in, the only way to get in. And Jesus is the only way for us to get into a real relationship with the real God. You don't have anything that is true about yourself to make God pleased, to, to uh, uh, make you worthy to be in God's presence. You must have a substitute, and Jesus is that substitute. This is where many people confuse the gospel with Christianity. Uh, this is a sweet truth. You, you come into a relationship with God not because you're good or wise or obedient or faithful to your spouse or an American or because you attend church or you try hard or you sing well or you give a lot, but because of your identification with Jesus Christ only in Him. I'm coming through Him and Him alone, He who is our perfect sacrifice, substitute. This truth becomes increasingly precious to me as I study it, and I, I would like that for you. And, and it does, and, and, and it, as it does, what Paul says in Romans 12 1 becomes increasingly clear. It's written there at the bottom of this passage. It's a well known verse. Paul's using sacrificial language, probably based on this burnt offering. It's something we're going to be unfolding in the weeks that are to come. Now that atonement has been made through Jesus Christ, in light of God's mercies, Your life is now the adoration. You slaughter the animal for atonement. You offer the animal as allegiance. Now, Paul says, present yourself as a living sacrifice in light of God's work. The cross is the declaration of our unworthiness. We don't dodge it. We don't ignore it. And your choices every day, what you do with your body, are the statements of God's worthiness. And that's why Paul says this is your spiritual act of worship. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for a number of reasons. We are grateful for Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is our perfect substitute. Uh, We didn't bring rams and birds and bulls to worship today. This building isn't filled with the smell of of blood and roasting meat and hot and sweaty uh, offerers. We come to you through Jesus Christ. And oh, how we want to uh, own that truth more and more. You know how we are prone to think that uh, we can earn your, your credit with you, that we can... Um, merit favors from you if we do good enough throughout the week, if we do well. And, and yet we come only because of Jesus. Thank you, God, that you rescued us. Thank you, God, that you uh, forgive us. We are villains and victims. We acknowledge that before you today through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.